Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. One of the greatest joys in life is unexpected reunion with a loved one. I've, I've, <clears throat> I've recently said to somebody, I don't remember who it was, that uh, musicians especially, but also athletes and you, if you've ever had a repetitive task, get something called muscle memory. I can remember one time when I was hired down in Columbia, South Carolina to uh, work on a, an apartment complex, and when I got there, they gave me a hammer. This was before the time of hammer guns, and they sent me through this whole huge, uh, humongous, like, it's probably about the size of this whole uh, room, and all it was was the subflooring was down, and I was to go through and hammer it. You know, I was putting nails in, and so I spent all day putting nails into the floor. And that night, when I went to sleep, I dreamt that I was hammering nails into the subflooring. And you've done jobs like that where you do the same thing over and over again. Then you get home and you go to bed and you 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 dream what you did all day. Well, this is, uh, growing up, this is what death became for me. It became sort of a muscle memory. I have these memories of uh, just the horror and the awfulness of death. And one of, the, one of the chief things that makes death so awful is that we know that we're made to love forever. And when, we, when somebody is the object of our love it's so wrong for us to be separated, right? You, you just feel like I can remember when I was on the back deck of my house in Spicewood and my brother Nathan called and told me I had cancer of the esophagus. And that muscle memory kicked in and I realized that in a little while, Nathan would not be where I could talk to him, call him, visit him, have his joyful laugh uh, his jokes, his stupid jokes. I mean, nobody could tell a stupid joke better than Nathan. He'd just milk it and go on and on. Everybody want to shoot him. <laughs> just tell the punchline, would you please, you know? Well, it's hard for us, given the things that we have recorded with Scripture, it's hard for us to enter into the love that the disciples and that his, his woman disciples had for Jesus. Because so much of what we have recorded of Jesus is actually Jesus rebuking everyone. He spends a huge amount of his life saying no. Um, even with the disciples, he spends an awful lot of his life saying you of little faith to his disciples, rebuking them, admonishing them. And so it's hard for us reading the history to get a feel for the tenderness that there existed between Jesus and his disciples. We get little pictures of this. One of the pictures that's sweet, really sweet, is, uh, well, there's several of them. One of them is when Peter says, let's put up some tents here. <laughs> you know, he's up in the Mount of Transfiguration. He wants to hang there with Jesus. He doesn't care the other disciples aren't there. It's like, Let, let's put some tents up and we can just hang for a while. Another one that's really, really 
sweet, is uh, when we see John with his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. And John uh, says to Jesus, who is it? Who's going to betray you? We all dodged a bullet when it wasn't John. That would have been more than we could bear to think of the one that Jesus was closest to. And when we think about separations we've had, um, I used to be a fan of uh, Hornblower series and Patrick O'Brien, and you think of those long, long times that husband and wife had apart from each other, and the joy and then immediately the stress of having hubby home. You know, I'm sure Jill Crum was not overjoyed when David got home from his cruises every time. I mean, at, at the beginning, yes, but uh, we had a friend up in uh, our farm up, uh, community up in Wisconsin who uh, told of the stress when he'd get back to San Diego after being out on the ship on a cruise for a long time and how he and his wife, uh, at first it was tender, but then they fought and typically over the discipline of the children. Well, reunions are something that we don't have as often today as we used to because we have Skype. The cost of plane tickets is so cheap today. And, and you fly and you complain about 16 hours. But I mean, what's 16 hours compared to a few decades ago when missionaries were gone? It was over, you know. And uh, so there aren't a lot of opportunities. We did recently have the joy of seeing Mary greet her mother. It's one of the sweetest things I've ever seen in my life. When uh, Terry, Mary, her daughter, didn't know that Terry Wagner was coming home from Africa. And uh, we got to be there when she saw her mother. If you want to, you can look on the video, although I looked for a long time this morning and couldn't find it. Is it still up there? How do you, how do you find it? What is it? Type in Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z-I-E, Kate, K-A-T-E, 90. I looked and looked and looked and looked. Anyhow, look at it. How many views does it have now? 1.2 million views. You know, stand up, Mary. <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to see a very similar thing, but this isn't a woman's mother and a mother's daughter. This is Jesus. And this is Jesus being recognized slowly, but being recognized by Mary Magdalene. So let's read the account. It's found in uh, John chapter 20. I'm going to actually start with verse 1 instead of verse 10, as I had said, so I'm sorry about that. Now on the first day of the week, and by the way, that's why we celebrate Easter on Sunday, or that's the reason that we celebrate worship every Sunday is because it was Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead, so it changed from Saturday to Sunday. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone 
already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's, that's John. Okay, so Peter and John. The other disciple that Jesus loved, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, isn't that interesting? It doesn't say the other disciple that loved Jesus. <laughs> you imagine being the disciple that Jesus loved. What a privilege. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. By the way, who's writing this? John's writing it. That's the reason he keeps referring to himself as the other disciple, you know. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the first time that Jesus reveals himself to one of his disciples after his resurrection. And who is it who receives the honor? The one that receives the honor is Mary Magdalene. And this Mary Magdalene was one of the few among Jesus' disciples who did not abandon him when he was hanging on the cross dying. We read in Mark 15:40 there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joses and Salome. So there Mary was looking on from a distance as Jesus hung on the cross and died. 
So it was this Mary who stood under the cross, who was the first of Jesus' followers, to be given the privilege of knowing that he was not defeated by death. That he had been victorious over the grave, just as he had said. You notice that the passage refers to the predictions of the prophecies of Scripture that he would rise from the dead. But if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus himself tells the disciples over and over again that he's going to rise from the dead, right? And so here she is. She, Mary Magdalene, is the first one to see Jesus' promise fulfilled. And this was a great honor for Mary. Now look at her devotion to Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verses 46 and 47, we read this. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down. This is Joseph of Arimathea, and this is referring to Jesus' body on the cross. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then it tells us Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I have, I have told myself this morning I am not going to mention cremation. But that's like not mentioning abortion when Jesus and John the Baptist first meet in the, in the wombs of their mothers. You know, here we have such a beautiful demonstration of the love for the body of your loved one. You know, there's none of this sort of hard, efficient, you know, environmentally correct, you know, put them in the fire and burn them. That'll show them. And then you get a little urn and, you know, you don't have to get dirty. You don't have to have a grave. You don't have to wrap the body. You don't have to clean the body. I remember going to a death here in the church. And the man whose father had died is sort of a flea-bitten tough dude. And I remember him describing to me his love for his father. You know how he described his love for his father when his father died in his home? He described it to me by describing how he had ministered to the body of his father after his dad died. And this is what we see on the part of Joseph of Arimathea, that he loves the body and he ministers to it. and He wraps the body in linen. And there Mary is. Jesus is gone. But the body of her loved one is there, and she watches, and she keeps watch over this body. It says, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. This was Jesus to them. Bishop Andrews says this about Mary Magdalene's love. He says, she was last at his cross and first at his grave. She stayed longest there and was soonest there. She couldn't rest until she was up to seek him. She sought him while it was yet dark, even before she had light to seek him by. 
I wonder why Mary was the message bearer of the resurrection of Jesus. Why, why did God give Mary the honor? Well, I think as you read this story and you see her with the other Mary watching Jesus' body, and you see her getting up early in the morning while it's still dark, you see that this whole story is a story of love. It says, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she came early while it was still dark. Why did she come early while it was still dark? Undoubtedly, she waited the whole night. Undoubtedly, she couldn't sleep. You've had a loved one who dies. Do you sleep? You don't sleep. You lay in bed, and as soon as she could, without it being weird, she got up and she went to the tomb. It was still dark outside. Why did she come? Well, she came to mourn. She came to do the work of grieving. She came to cry. She came to mourn over the body of Jesus. The body that she loved. The body was all she had left of him. And so the body is what she ministered to. Tomb, ointments, keeping watch, mourning that she was playing honor to the dead body of Jesus. She came to cry out her terrible pain at her terrible loss. Not just her loss, but we know the loss of the whole world, but the redemption of the whole world. So she is blind to anything but her own mourning and grief at this moment. She has come here to the garden to grieve at the grave of the one that she loved. And in that quiet place, she hopes to find a time when she's not going to have to talk to anybody other than God. This is a time when she can be away from all the well-intentioned questions, away from everybody that wants to help, away from everything except Jesus. And cemeteries are made for this. Cemeteries are memorials to love and to loss. And this is why we put our bodies in our cemeteries. So Mary went off to mourn in the darkness, but here, what is this? She rises at the grave and she finds that the door, which was a stone, has been rolled away. And so now we see that the one thing that she had left of her loved one, Jesus' body, the one thing she had left is gone. And so, obviously, her question is, where is he? Where have they taken him? You can imagine her praying, oh, dear Father in heaven, where did they take him? Where did they put him? Where is my Jesus? And you can imagine how she felt. This was the last and the most bitter and cruel blow to her wounded heart because they had taken her Jesus. And so in her anguish at this discovery, she did what came naturally. She went and found the two disciples who were closest to Jesus. These were the two men, if men can feel anything, I'm not sure. But these were the two men that if men can feel anything, maybe they had a chance of comforting her and of sharing with her her fear, right? Peter and John. She goes and gets Peter and John, and we read that they ran... She was bringing them to help. When Peter and John got to the tomb, 
Peter ran inside. Well, he would have had to stoop over to run inside. It was low. And seeing that Jesus was not there, and seeing that his linen clothing, the cloths that were bound around his body, were lying there, that the body was gone, it says that Peter and John returned to their homes. But John saw and believed. The men left, and the woman stayed. Now, I don't know what to make of that. It does kind of seem weird to me that the men would just leave. Why did they leave? I don't know. It doesn't seem right that the body's gone, they believe, and they leave Mary there crying. Does that seem right? It just seems weird to me. But it doesn't, we don't have any clue. John Calvin does. He has a number of suggestions, which uh, some of them were funny enough that I laughed out loud at them. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to give them to you because, on this case, I don't think he's right. But anyhow. And so the men left, and what did Mary do? Well, in verse 11, it says, Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. You all know the expression, whistling in the dark, right? You know, if you're scared walking from the barn to the house, you just whistle, and everything's okay. You don't have to be afraid of anything. In America today, in my lifetime, I'm old enough to have seen a lot of funerals. As a matter of fact, in Wisconsin, our house butted up to the funeral home in town. And so I was the guy that got called to do the funerals for somebody that didn't have anybody else to bury him. I've seen a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of whistling in the dark. But it's getting worse. It used to be that even unbelievers were respectful of death and did not make it out to be a happy, clappy, uh, happy meal kind of thing. It used to be that there was sobriety, that there was uh, uh, a recognition of being little in the face of death. It used to be that everybody treated death as an enemy. It used to be that everybody cried. Have you noticed, though, what's been going on lately? You know how everything is trivial now. Everything has no weight, gravitas. Nothing has any weight anymore. And death is the thing that's so noticeable in American culture today. It just has no weight anymore. Have you noticed that? You notice you go, I was asked to, to officiate at a funeral a couple years ago because I had a passing acquaintance with, uh, with this couple, and the man died, so I was asked to officiate at the funeral. So I went to the funeral, and it was the strangest thing in the world. You know, I was, when I got there, I found out I was just to open it and close it. You know, I was to stand up, start the funeral, then sit down and be quiet. And then at the end of the funeral, stand up and say, it's over. (laughs) You know, that's about what I did. And the whole funeral was like telling 
jokes about the man and funny stories about the man and then telling jokes that the man told. And I knew the man enough to know that he wasn't really a joking kind of guy. He, he was actually kind of dour, you know. And, and this is what all funerals are today. Funerals today are just absolutely perfectly designed to remove any tears, any fear of God, any, any proclamation of the judgment. Funerals are just, you know, frivolous. And I have noticed, even in Christian funerals, increasingly the theme is to tell funny stories. And they don't have the funny stories at the wake, which is perfectly appropriate. We used to have wakes. And that's where you tell funny. Some of the best stories I have about my dad, I learned at the wake. All right? But at a funeral, where we testify to our hope in the resurrection, to, to allow stories in a funeral to corrupt the fear of God, it's an awful thing. We're supposed to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ at a funeral. That's what a funeral is called. A service of witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at a funeral, we're supposed to desire the resurrection of Christ. It's to be our only hope. Why? Well, because without the resurrection of Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Do you recognize? That's what the Apostle Paul says about us. If there is no resurrection of the dead then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and after death there's nothing. And so the whole purpose of a funeral is to comfort the grieving. But what we do is we remove grieving. Have you noticed this? Come on, be honest with me. Funerals are big jokes now. You just tell funny stories and everybody laughs, ha, 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 and then we go out and eat little dainties at the church or, you know, at, and, and ha, ha, ha again. And I want you to notice that there was nothing done with the death of Jesus Christ to turn it into a joke. They mourned his body. They ministered to his body. They, they wrapped his body in linen cloths. They anointed it with perfume. They kept watch over the body. And nobody was telling jokes to Mary Magdalene. And so here we have beauty. And why do I say beauty? Well, because it's beautiful when the dead are loved and the love produces grief. Grief and mourning are beautiful things. Why? Well, because they testify to how God made us. God made us to live forever. God made us to never cry, to never be sick, to never sin. And so when we mourn death, we are speaking truth. We're testifying to the truth. It's a wonderful thing to grieve. <laughs> you look at me like I'm crazy, I know. But do you know what happens when you don't do the work of grief? It's horrible. 
Some people don't do the work of grief because they're really not sorry to see their father dead. Now, how horrible is that? That's even more horrible than to not do the work of grief because you don't love the person who died or to not do the work of grief because you have no hope of ever seeing them again. Always, 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 always throughout history. That is the reason that people cremated their bodies and their loved ones. It has always been a testimony, always, of no belief in life after death. But today we don't know that, and so Christians all over the country are getting cremated. And there's no body, and there's no grave digger. There's no committal service. There may be a little something like in a boat out on Lake Michigan or something, you know. In America today, we're doing everything we can to remove death from our thinking. And that's because we don't want to think about God's holiness and we don't want to think about his judgment. And that's because we don't want to think about the death of Christ. And we don't want to think about eating his body and drinking his blood. And yet there is no other hope for us. There is no hope for sinful man and sinful woman other than the dead, stone-cold body of Jesus that paid for our sins. There's none. And so listen, I, I don't have any hesitation in telling you that you cannot begin to know the gospel of Jesus Christ until you begin to mourn your loved ones. And listen, the first thing you're going to mourn when you mourn your loved ones who have, who have gone is you're going to mourn your own sin. Any of you know what I'm talking about? It's just unbelievable. I, I have this story, and you're going to think I'm weird for telling it to you, but you know, to me, this is what death is. This is my muscle memory. Every time somebody dies, I remember all the sins I've committed against them. That's just, it just waves over me, you know? And so I remember when my grandmother was living with us, grandma and grandpa had both lived with us, and the grandpa went, and then grandma was living with us, and she went, she, she became senile. Dad got up one night and found that she had taken apart the, the, uh, the bookshelves in the bathroom and removed everything from the bookshelves to another room. And we kind of laughed at it. We loved her, but we laughed at it. Well, then one night my father was preaching at some church in the evening service. So he and my mother left. They got in the car. They said goodbye. I was the oldest child left in charge, you know. And my two younger brothers, who were six and eight years younger than I was, we were all sitting at the table. Nana was there at the table, and then my two brothers and I, and I was across. And as we were sitting at the table, my grandmother kicked me under the table. And so I made jokes to my brothers about Nana kicking me. I didn't do it so she heard me. But they knew that she was, and what were we doing? Well, you know what we were doing, right? We were laughing. We were laughing at her. All of a sudden, she sits up straight, rigid, and falls over dead. And I went up to my dad's study with my brothers. I was crying. Why was I crying? Well, because I had been making fun of my grandmother when she died, the very moment. 
And so what did I do? I, I led Nathan and David and myself in a prayer of repentance. Well, just imagine if my father had come in, I caught him at the top of the driveway, mud was delayed a little bit. My dad came in, told me to get the oxygen, but it was, it was too late. Imagine if my father had said, well, that's good. Her suffering is over, and she's in a better place now. And when my mother walked in, my father said to my mother, isn't this wonderful, Mary? Your mother suffered so badly, and now she's in a better place. And that's what we do today. It's, just, it's, it's pathetic. It's awful. Imagine if my father had been such a, such a, such a jerk that he, he, he told my mother not to cry. And that's what we do today. Listen, it's a precious thing to have a grandmother and to have a mother, even if they are senile. For years, my mother was sort of half batty, you know? And every time I'd see her, she'd just say, why doesn't God take me? And I'd say, because we love having you. Now, she wasn't living with me. She was living with my brother. And there were difficulties, right? But it was so precious. This last week, we went up and, and had my mother-in-law's birthday, 99 years old. And how precious to see that woman. Her dignity. She gets more beautiful every year. And I'm not just saying that. I heard her, her children saying that. I thought it. They said it. All right. Here she is with her 10 children, all in this house, and they tell stories. She told the first joke I've ever heard her tell. I don't remember it. It was weird. It was like about a logger, and, and, and the whole place just went berserk because nobody had ever heard her tell a joke. And she waits until 99 years old. She finally tells a joke to her kids that are in their 70s. <laughs> you know? So what, when she dies, we're supposed to all just be so happy that mom's gone and it is in a better place now. Death is the period, the full stop, the end of our fellowship with the people we love. And it doesn't matter if they're 99 and have had a stroke or if they're unborn and in their mother's womb. God did not make us to die. Death is an enemy. It's an enemy. And so here Mary is. She knows death is an enemy. She is not whistling in the dark. She is crying in the dark. And it's a beautiful thing. Because what? You know, the wonderful words of, uh, of the funeral service from the prayer book from Cranmer the Reformation. In the midst of life, we live in death. And of whom may we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. Of all the liturgies of worship that I've ever been a part of or used, that's my favorite one. In the midst of life, we are in death. And of whom must we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. And then, when we give ourselves to death, okay, 
I'm not talking about physician-assisted suicide. I damn it in the name of God. I'm talking about we give ourselves to God's sovereignty over life and death. When we give ourselves to God's sovereignty over the life and death of our loved ones in the womb and at 99, when we give ourselves to death, submit to it, then we get the joyful news. And Mary Magdalene grieved, and then she had joy. And what was the joy? First the angels, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my word. So it's obvious that she, she doesn't believe. Peter and John believe. She doesn't believe yet. Because they have taken away my word, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Now, she didn't see Jesus yet. But it was Jesus she saw. <laughs> she just didn't know it. She saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to him, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. And by the way, all of you, that's why we garden. It's just a joke. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she's just, she's like, she's blind in grief. What's she going to do with the dead body? How much did Jesus weigh? What's she going to do? You know, she can't carry his body. Show me the body. I'll take the body. You know, she couldn't do anything. But that's the... That's the love that she had for Jesus. Martin Luther says, Mary's heart was so filled up with Christ and thoughts about Christ that besides him she neither hears nor sees anything. Mary's heart was so filled up with Jesus that there was no one else for her in all the world. And so what we see here is that Mary Magdalene wanted Jesus. Mary Magdalene wanted Jesus. As a matter of fact, there was only one thing that could comfort Mary Magdalene at that moment, and that was to receive Jesus from God. Otherwise, her grief would have continued. It would have been ameliorated if she could get the body back. But it wouldn't have been removed. The only thing that could comfort Mary, truly comfort her, is to receive Jesus back. And guess what? She received him. And it is unbelievable. It is impossible. It is, you know, I remember, um, and I don't remember who it was who said it, but some famous person said it, so please don't accuse me of plagiarism. But some famous person said that after the resurrection of the... No, no, actually, this is what they said. What they said was, um, after... Yeah, yeah, okay, I got to get this right. Okay, I'm sorry. I was messing it up. If you have ever seen the sun rise at the beginning of the day... You've seen, and I, this is a terrible paraphrase, but you have seen such a miracle 
that the resurrection of the dead is nothing. Now think about this for a second. Why do we think that, that, that the sun rising is natural and not supernatural? The only reason is because it happens every day. If you had never seen the sun rise, you imagine how it would boggle your mind? I remember the first time I saw the Northern Lights going on the Trans-Canada Highway, and I'm colorblind, and it boggled my mind. It was like, there is no way anything like this exists. The whole horizon covered with these dancing, unbelievably beautiful, like, I don't know, but it was just mind-boggling. Well, so is every single day, so is the sunrise. But we don't see the resurrection of the dead. And so that's a miracle. But the sunrise is no miracle. And so we think that God can't raise people from the dead and didn't raise his son, and, and we're materialists. But we're materialists that every single day we see the sunrise and we just accept it as matter of fact and trot out the thing about the rotations and the gravity and the solar systems and the 10 billion light years and all this stuff and talk about it like we have control over it because we can explain. This is, it's absurd. And so here we see Mary Magdalene wants Jesus. It is the only thing that can comfort her, and she is given Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Now, why did God do this? Well, God did this because fathers honor sons who are, go ahead, say the word, obedient. Fathers honor sons who are obedient. We had a couple of young men who were being disciplined by elders and a pastor last night. And I was wondering whether I should go there. I was out walking with my kids and my grandchildren, and it hit me that they were having the meeting, and should I go? I decided not to because it was too much fun out at the highway trying to get the cars and trucks to honk their horns with all the grandchildren, right? But I thought to myself, what would, what would I say to those young men if I were in that meeting? And since they're here, they'll hear it. I would have said to them, why would you waste your life sinning? Why would you do that? Sinning is so boring. Why don't you spend your lives pleasing your father and pleasing the fathers of this church? That is unusual. <laughs> you know, that is interesting. We live in a day when obedience of your father is flabbergasting. Imagine that, a son that's respectful to his father and obeys him. Right? Why did God raise his son from the dead? Because he was obedient. And how obedient was he? 
<laughs> How obedient was he? Was he obedient just to handle mud on a hose? No. He was obedient unto death. And then what does it say in Philippians? Even what? A death on a cross. And then it says what? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we live in a day that makes nothing of death and a day that tramples on fatherhood. But there is nothing that communicates more the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the father honoring a son who does the work his father has done before him. That's what it says about Jesus. He did the work he saw his father doing. You know, when I was in Wisconsin, a lot of the, a lot of the farmers had a little picture on the wall. Some of you have seen it where you have this uh, little boy. He's probably two years old. He's got the bib overalls on and the hat, the, ball, the baseball cap, just like his dad. Dad bib overall, where you beep boy? Bib, bib overall. And one of them, they're both proud. They have these unbelievably proud faces on. One of them is carrying a bucket. And it's not the father. It's this little tyke of a son. And the bucket's so big, it's like half his body. And he's struggling to carry it. And they're so proud because the son's what? The son is doing the work that he sees his father doing. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus came and pleased his father, and therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And so God raised his son. His son said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he's dying on the cross? His father hadn't forsaken him. His father raised him from the dead. And here's Mary, and she thinks it's over. And she turns, she thinks he's the gardener. She's, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary. <laughs> Mary. 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 Wouldn't you love it if Scripture had a recording of how he said it to her? You know? You could press on it, double-click. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary called her, or Jesus called Mary by what? By her name. Remember what Jesus said about himself? He said in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep 
hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Then Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Listen, everything you read on the internet, every movie you watch, everything is a concerted effort to take your ears away from Jesus. Everything you listen to is an attempt to get you to rebel against the Father God Almighty that Jesus spent his life obeying. Who will you listen to? Who will you listen to? Will you listen to all the voices of this world seducing you to hell? Or will you listen to the voice of God? Well, Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, is even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And so you look at Jesus turning to Mary, and he says, Mary. And then the next thing we read, she recognizes him, and then Jesus says in verse 17, what? Stop what? Stop clinging to me. <laughs> this is so beautiful. I'm sure glad they didn't cremate Jesus' body. I'm kind of kidding. I mean, obviously, when God raised him from the dead, he would have been raised from the dead with his body intact if he was cremated just as he was, as, as he was buried. But here she is. She sees this body of Jesus, and she apparently just fell on her face in front of her, and she just clung to his legs. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. We don't understand the meaning of that. We don't know what it was. Uh, there are different opinions about that. But for some reason, it, what, what she was doing was inappropriate, but perfectly understandable, right? But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. What a beautiful statement. Go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. We're dignified as children of God to be called the brothers of Jesus. All of us, men, women, we're all brothers, all right? Go to my brother and tell them, say to them, I ascend, and then watch this, to what? My father and your father. God is the father of those who believe in Jesus Christ. He is our father.
He is our Father. So many of you are living your lives resenting the Father you had. And there's no need to do that. You don't need to resent him. Why? Well, because you have a Father. Jesus says, my Father, your Father. And God is perfect. I'm not. You all know that. Your husband isn't, trust me. And even if you have a good father, and I had a good father, two of them, Meryl Lee's father and my father, they're not God. I remember when my dad had died for a couple of years, I was grieving my father, and then I realized that God had given me himself as, his, as my father. And I realized it was sin for me to be grieving for my good father because I had God. My father and your father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came to the brothers, to the other disciples, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, this story, this account of Jesus showing himself to Mary is not a secondhand account. It's direct it's firsthand, it's eyewitness, it's eye touch, it's grasping his legs. There's no ambiguity in this story, none. This is Mary. And Mary took her message to the other disciples. She said, I have seen Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, who do you desire and have you seen Jesus? Now, first, who do you desire? Well, all of us have things that are difficult for us. Some it's the marriage that we're in. Some it's the marriage that we're not in. Some it's the loss of someone we love. Some, especially young people, it's, it's sin. Sin is such a a terrible burden in our lives, and that's what causes us to grieve, our own sin. There are many reasons. It can be cancer, it can be uh, unrequited love. It can just be intellectual density in a community that has a university it's, it's sent. You know, you know that you're not cut out to be a top competitor in education, you know, you're the dumb one. You're not even me. What my teachers always wrote was, it doesn't work up to potential. Every single report card, didn't matter who the teacher was, does not work up to potential. I'm going to die. It's going to be my gravestone. Does not work up to potential. <laughs> my mother always said, he's far above his potential. <laughs> she didn't want me to get a big head about my potential. <laughs> Whatever it is that you try to whistle about, is Jesus the solution to that? What does your heart desire? Does your heart desire Jesus, like Mary? Hmm? Hmm? Does it? 
You know, somebody famous once said, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. Is Jesus your pleasure? When you do have a grief, is it Jesus you turn to? Is it Jesus you desire? You know, men, there's a reason why I picked Mary Magdalene to preach on this morning. I think Mary is just a beautiful way for men to examine our hearts and to see whether we love Jesus. But I'm aware that many of us think we're really, hmm, I can't say that word, but you know, hard-nosed. Hmm? And that, you know, the whole point of being a man is to not feel the kind of loss and grief and not have the kind of desire that Mary had. It's so unseemly, it's feminine, right? Isn't that really how we look at Mary? I mean, honestly, it is. You know, poor Mary, you know, she was just given over to grief and she was such a sinner. You know, she didn't believe what Jesus had told him. And, and then she's so unseemly. I mean, you know, she's, she's out of her mind thinking it's a garden and she throws herself at the feet and then she runs to the disciples. She runs back to the disciples and it's just like a typical woman. You know? Mary, Mary, you know? But listen, as I was getting ready to preach, you know who I thought of? I thought of two men. Who were the two men I thought of? Well, I think that they're the two men who more than anybody else in Scripture, these two men typify masculinity. There are no, there are no, uh, there are no men in Scripture who are greater warriors than these two men. Nobody. And who are those two men? One of them is King David, and the other is Paul. Absolutely, Paul. I, in heaven, I want to be around Paul. Why? Well, because Paul was bloody. Paul suffered unbelievably in proclaiming the name of Jesus. He never stopped suffering. And then... Probably, while he was in prison, he died. And I want to read to you what these men say about Jesus. And you ask yourself whether Mary Magdalene or David or Paul were the ones who are more demonstrative and more tender about their love for Jesus, okay? First, David. He says this. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Uh, it doesn't quite make the translation to it, does it? The nearness of God is my good. Okay, right? Okay, here you go. Ready? You all ready? Just like me, they long. That's what David is saying. 
He longs to be close to Jesus. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Okay, so that's David. Remember Saul's killed his thousands, but David what? His ten thousands. And then the Apostle Paul, he says this. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Sound masculine, eh? Okay. No, it doesn't actually. That discipline part doesn't quite make it, does it? (laughs) Especially if it had the word self in front of it. Power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, and we all breathe a sigh of relief, right? Not according to our works, (laughs) but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, what? Do any of you know what it says? Come on, what does it say? Who abolished death? And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. And then what does he say? Same thing he says in in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am, I am not ashamed. How many of you were ashamed this week and didn't invite anybody to come and hear the gospel? Come on, be honest. How many of you were ashamed this week? Oh, you're all lying. Either that or you didn't even think about asking people to come hear the gospel. He says, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Who do you believe? Do you believe Jesus? I know whom I have believed, and I am thinking maybe, I am wondering, I am of, of, I am of the opinion. I personally believe, I believe, I think, I wonder, may I suggest, now, now this is the language of Facebook, but that's not what the Apostle Paul says, for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Does this sound like a man that's compromised and hedging his bets? There was nothing hedging about the Apostle Paul or King David. Nothing. They sinned. But even in their sin, what glorious sins of Peter, you know? No, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And you have to love him in his sin. Real men, real male sins, and male faith. My dear friends here this morning, don't join the world in its its 
it's trivializing of death. Death is an enemy. It's a terrible, terrible enemy. It separates us from those that are most dear to us. And it ushers us into the judgment seat of God. Don't trivialize death. Have the faith to grieve. And to face your own mortality. As at the back with Mary Louise, our little granddaughter, and you all have seen Mary Louise, and you know that every single day is a gift from God. Every single day. Her life is so tenuous. Last night, <laughs> we were out there on that walk, and I had the stroller. And you know what I did? And I'm, I'm sorry, but I did it. I was standing by the road, and there was a little slope down to all the family gathered there. And so I gently shoved the stroller and let go of it. There was a wall of people. They were 10 feet away. Mary Louise is in that. Mary Louise's mother instantly was angry and in tears. And oh, I got up this morning thinking about it again. I don't know why I do things like this. Life is tenuous. Life is short. In the midst of life, we live in death. And of whom may we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. And so Mary went in her grief to Jesus. And God raised him from the dead because he was an honorable son who obeyed him. And Jesus is the only one who can allow us to stare at death and to not be broken by it. And Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits. And that means all the people you love, I was thinking of Glenn this morning. Big, burly, bad, b -b -b bad to the bone, Glenn. Football player, you know, union man. And death broke him. It smashed him. But Glenn died in Christ. And so Rachel, his wife, has this wonderful future when she will be reunited as Mary was reunited with Jesus. And so we are people who grieve, but not as the world without hope. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. All of us who die in Christ will also be raised from the dead, and we will hear our master's voice, and we will recognize his voice, because he's the good shepherd, and we're just his, we're just his sheep. And that will be glory. That will be glory. So trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And then be an obedient daughter and an obedient son. All right? Let's pray. Father, we bring to you our, our bodies of death. We bring to you the sins which you are justly displeased at our sins. We don't hide them from you, Father. We acknowledge our sins. We ask, Father, please would you wash us with the blood of Jesus.
Would you please make him precious in our hearts? Would you have us live in obedience to him by the power of your spirit? And Father, would you please give us on this glorious day hope of the resurrection when, first of all, we will see his face and be like him and when we will be reunited with all those who are dead in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.